So let's turn to Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. And it's very important to read verse 2 of chapter 20 before we get to verse 3. Because it tells us who is the one making the covenant. Right? It's the introduction. It's telling us what he has done. Right? So remember like how we're discussing the suzerainty and the younger one, the smaller nation. Um, this is the God who saves. Right? I am the, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right? And this is what he requires of us. And then we get into the commandments. Um, I think it's just re- important to remember right before we get into it that especially for us believers, the law is there to help us in our relationship with God, right? However, we must always keep the order of it uh, as the one that's given, right? It's important to know that we are not saved by keeping these, right? It will lead you otherwise to depression, like literally it will, it will crush you, right? It will lead to struggle in your life as a Christian. You will be constantly frustrated if you try to live up to these standards, Right? You can't base your or anyone's salvation on performance. It's not a performance-based relationship that we have with Christ. Right? And that never works. Right? Even a relationship between us and people cannot be performance-based. It will never work out. Um, uh, why? You know the statistics of couples who uh, live together, like girlfriend and boyfriend live together, and then they get married. Uh, divorce is normally higher, actually, within those circles. Right? And it's because when they were living together, it was a performance-based relationship, right? Uh, they, were ha- they were hoping to catch one another. It's, and once they get married, it's like, oh, well, and then the performance drops, right? The person you choose to live with will always be of a lower standard, right, than, you, than the person you choose to marry. I don't know if that makes sense, right? Because you cannot perform all the time, right? We are fallen, we are weak, and... In the end of, at the end of the day, relationships work by grace, right? You need to have grace with the other people, with the other person, whenever they fail you. And likewise, whenever you fail them. So when you think God's love for you is based on your performance, it will destroy you because you will keep trying to win his love, his favor, his blessing, and it will never be enough. So I'm just saying that because I think it's a huge temptation uh, for Christians, even those of us who know that we are saved and atoned for in Christ alone, you know, we can subtly fall into that where, okay, I've done this, like, ugh, you know, how can I pray to God? How can I do this? And we beat ourselves up, you know, just remember that um, the law is not what saves us because I think that mentality starts to creep in, you know, I need to uh, have God's favor by doing X, Y, Z. But if you keep realizing and remember that He loved you first, you know, whilst you were an enemy, you know, that will free you. And that is a fight every day that we have to fight. It's a fight that we have to have to believe in. Um, so, yeah. And then we get the Ten Commandments, right? And just quickly, the Ten Commandments are what's known as a synodoke, right? Synodoke, yeah. It's a long, it's a big word, guys. I'm not going to write it down. Please forgive me. It's a synodoke. And it's a figure of speech which, in which, like, uh, a part refers to the whole. Right, so someone says all hands on deck, you know, it's not literal hands. Yes, let's have. Oh, we have an English major. It's pronounced synecdoche. Sure. Okay, it's pronounced synecdoche. There we go. You know, this is why we need let's have. Um, thank you, professor. Um, so yeah, right. That's the definition. The part refers to the whole. 
So you say all hands on deck, you know, it's not like literally hands. It's referring to people. So, you know, in this, in this case, hands are referring to whole human beings. Um, and it's the same thing with the Ten Commandments, right? They are comprehensive, right? The Ten Commandments cover all behavior. So uh, any kind of sexual immorality falls into, you shall not commit adultery, right? So God doesn't have to, like, write a huge list. Um, it's, it's a synecdoche. See, oh, sorry, synecdoche, right? Um, so the Ten Commandments cover all behavior, and as you go through the law or imperative in Scripture, they all will fall under one or a few of the Ten Commandments, right? But they are a summation, and Jesus even, like, does this even further, right? Uh, we have the Ten Commandments, but Jesus, I don't want to say reduces them, but he distills them into two, right? Which is, you shall love your God and you shall love your neighbor, right? So same thing with the Ten Commandments. Um, so those are uh, the two, right? And the second is just as important as the first, right? Loving God is just as important as loving your neighbor. Can't love God and hate people, right? You can't say, some people have said, oh, I love God, but, you know, it's, I can't stand those people. You know, I can't stand Christians. Um, and, you know, you can't be that person, right? Likewise, you can't say that you love people, but you hate God. Wait, wait, you can't say that you love people, but you... Yes, yes, but you hate God, yes. It's what unbelievers claim, right? Um, um, uh, loving God helps us to love people properly, right? Because I don't know if you've noticed, there's so many definitions of love out there, right? Uh, for most people, love has become a feeling, an affirmation, right? If you love me, you will make me feel this kind of way or you will support me in feeling this kind of way, right? And the problem with that is the world, even Christians, want us to affirm they're in their sin, right? So if you don't support someone's homosexual behavior, what are you called? Homophobic. More than that, you're called hateful. Right? You're the opposite of loving because you're not affirming someone in their sin. Right? You're a bigot. You're whatever else they choose uh, to label with you. So you can always see people have their different definitions of love. But what does scripture tell us? Right? First John 4 verse 8 says, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Right? So outside of knowing God, you cannot love. You cannot love people properly. Right? You can only claim to love people, but if you do introspection, you will see it's just the feelings that you're referring to, right? You're describing feelings as love, whereas love is more than that. Love is more action than feeling. And so Jesus himself summarizes the Ten Commandments, right? What does it look like to love God? The first four commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God and remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Right, so that's how you love God, right? And you, you notice how it's action oriented, because I think a lot of Christians also say, uh, in your daily walk, uh, sometimes you know I don't feel like you know feel like I don't love God, or I feel like I can't help people, I can't serve, I can't do this and this, and it's a real challenge because sometimes you know we need, I think we rely on our motivation to do something, right? Um, and uh, so a piece of helpful advice, I remember, I think it was Mike who told me this, he's like, you'll find often as a Christian that right feeling follows right action. You know, you feel like, ugh, 
you know, I don't feel like uh, loving my spouse today. But when you do the thing, you actually see that your feelings follow afterwards. You know, you do the action and then your heart follows. And it's really an amazing thing. I've seen that personally in my life. And I think it's just an encouragement sometimes to, you know, just do the right thing. You know, obey God and your heart will follow. Besides, feelings make for a terrible leader, right? Because they lead you into all kinds of messes. And what does it look like to love people? See the next six commandments. You have to honor your father and mother, right? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet. And we can always unpack the commandments to see what positive instructions and what negative instructions they give us, right? I think just reading at face value, you immediately see the negative implications, right? Or the negative direction of it. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do that. But there's a positive implication to each commandment, especially when you see the whole of Scripture, right? What does it mean that we must not murder? It doesn't mean that you mustn't just kill the guy who cut in front of you in the line, you know? It means that you must go out and preserve life. You know, you must do all things that promote life, right? You must not only steal, but we must be generous. You must be giving, right? Don't covet. Be a grateful person for what you have and rejoice when you see other people being blessed, right? There's a lot of um, debate as to whether the Ten Commandments... Yes, Sorry, uh, the one that starts up when you use verse, it's between verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be drawn in the land that the Lord your God has given you. So it seems like throughout all the other commandments, they're just stated, but that one has sort of like a, an attachment to it. It has a clause, right? A clause, yeah. Mm. So is this... Um, saying, is this like, how do you meant to read this? Is, does it literally mean if you do on your parents, you're going to live long? Or is it just ideally if you do on your parents, you're going to live long? Mm. Like, I don't know how to read it. Do I take it literally? Or do you, yeah, I mean, first of all, remember genre, genre analysis? So this is a didactic teaching, right? It's not really narrative. So it's teaching you what will happen. Um, Honor your father. So it's the only commandment with a kind of like a, a clause, right? Attached to it. What's it? Uh, verse 12. Honor your God and, sorry. Yes, honor your God. But honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, right? So I can't really give an in-depth answer because I'd also want to go into the context because remember this is God giving this to the Israelites in the wilderness and but I think the general, general um, lesson or principle is true. Uh, when you honor your father and mother, it's familial relations. It's family, familial relations are a blessing and having good ones just lead to more blessing, right? Um, and protection and... Yeah, 100%, you know? Um, so it's not, it's not just obey your mother and father, it's honor them because I think the obedience would just be like when you maybe like living under their house. But honoring, and, honoring them is, you know, even once you're out of the household and you're still relating to them, you know, you honor them as your parents. And it, there's a lot of blessing that comes with it. And I think you'd see that when you read like Proverbs or wisdom literature, you know, and you see the practical blessing that comes through it. And I think we all know something of it, like family relations, and families where 
there's you see like the relations between parents and um, children you know just how those families grow strong and they're able to build wealth and you know because they're united and there's love and all these things so it's it's a it's a command with a blessing attached to it which is um really cool okay <coughs> so uh some people believe that um the 10 commandments don't hold right uh, they're like, okay, no, that was Old Testament, you know, so we're not there anymore. We have the new covenant. We're under grace, not the law. We're under the, yeah, we're under grace, not law, etc., etc. But I think that they do hold, right? For one, they are like the only part of the Bible that God physically wrote himself, right? So that, that tells you that it's important. And Paul in the New Testament and much of the New Testament will quote verbatim from the Ten Commandments, right? He clearly says that they are binding. For example, he will say, children obey your mother and father, right? And uh, the problem I think that many people get is uh, Paul seems to criticize the law, right? Uh, it's like he's speaking against the law, you know? Uh, we are no longer under law, but under grace. Um, and we read about the law and he'll say some stuff. He's like, no, but the law is this, you know, it brings about death. Uh, it's bad. It's finished. It's gone. But elsewhere, he'll say wonderful things about the law. Right. Um, really, what's happening there is when Paul is dealing with the law negatively, he's talking about legalism. Right. And when he talks about it positively, he talks about the way the law should be treated. Right. It is legalism and it condemns us condemns us when we use it negatively, when we use it as a means to reach God, right? Um, but it blesses us if we use it correctly. So before we come to Christ, the law is like a mirror, right? It shows us what we are. It shows us how we don't measure up. It shows us how fallen we are, right? It shows that we fall short. But after we've been converted, and I think, I can't remember if it's Charles Spurgeon or Martin Luther who said this, but he says, the, the same stick that God used to beat me with has now become my walking stick, right? It's like a really amazing picture. It's like the law was like a stick and, you know, I was being beaten up because, you know, I couldn't keep it. And then I was saved and now I can take that stick and use it to walk, right? Walk in a way that honors and pleases God. Because how do you know what pleases God, you know? What do we use to practically live a life that is honoring to God? It's the law, Right? And so, any questions about that? About Ten Commandments, the law? Percy? Well, the Ten Commandments or the law, uh, were they uh, in, finished in the Old Testament or there were some com new commandments which came in the New Testament? Um, but maybe like, uh, or, uh, it's a shame for a man to be a law Um, um, so not quite I mean so the law as given here that's like kind of like the foundation of uh, like I was like what I was trying to allude to other like earlier with the synodoki that thing right <laughs> is that the ten commandments right every other law or instruction is rooted in this right but the Ten Commandments are just the Ten Commandments. Like, this is the only kind of law, you know, the bedrock that we get in Scripture. 
which is like the standard basically right and then you'll get like other kinds of laws so like civil laws or like when we get to Deuteronomy and Leviticus we'll see God giving like all these other laws right civil laws like if your neighbor has a goat and or if he has a house and he falls off then you should like pay him this much da 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 right if you take like that law and you think about it and you'll see that it fits into each and every or not each and every but like a part of it will fit into this you know so it's like the, this is the root of God's law you know it kind of gives you the foundation so you'll find other imperatives or other commands in scripture right but they all stem from this even Jesus he comes and expands on the law you know he'll say you've heard you've heard it say what you shall not commit adultery right but i tell you he who even looks at a woman with lust you know so he's it's still the same law he's dealing with but he's showing you just how much depth or you know how deep it goes so it's not just i won't commit adultery it's like if you even think about lust you know you've broken this law so that's really kind of like how the laws work you know they're all rooted in the 10 commandments if i can put it like that so you will get under you i mean the in the new testament we have the epistles right and there's lots of commands even then you know but you'll see that those commands are just ways to help us honor the 10 commandments you know they help they they kind of help us as christians you know now in light of christ how do we honor god um how do we use the law you know how do we view the law properly so if you can't trace it back to those ten commandments, you probably say that's a, like a cultural thing. I mean, I can't trace back the way of long hair, you know, mm. to, to one, I don't know, maybe it's Yeah, and I mean... I mean, with the hair example, right, because um, what is Paul talking about there? He's talking about, like, uh, in a bigger sense, he's talking about men and women, right, and, like, gender roles there, and th- that's in Corinthians, right, First Corinthians, like, 10 or 11 or somewhere there, and he's talking about, like, in the church, you know, you should um, carry, like, men should be, if I was going to, like, summarize it, he's saying, like, men, be like men, you know, women, be like women. Women show that you are wives under submission. Men show that you are heads of households, right? And then the examples that Paul uses are examples that are relevant to that culture, right? Uh, some people say, like, with long hair, for example, it is just manly. I mean, not manly, regardless of any culture. But there's a lot of, like, more intricacies. But, yeah. I don't want to, because I feel like now I'm going to go away from this. But, yeah. Okay, but does that answer your question about the law and all that? Okay. Any other questions about the law? We're good. Okay, I'm going to look at 25 to 40 now, right? Big section. Um, how many of you tried reading this? Oh, okay. That's why you're my brother. <laughs> Um, it's a big section and it can be quite dry reading this, right? Because as Christians, we need to be honest. Sometimes reading God's word can be difficult, right? Because it seems to be repetitive, right? What happens is it'll say, Moses, uh, this is, God will say, Moses, this is how you should build the tabernacle. And then it will say, this is how Moses built the tabernacle. You know, like just all of this detail. You're like, okay, God, like, do I really need to know the measurements? I don't even know what a cubic stone meter is, you know? Um, and really the emphasis here 
is on the uh, so the emphasis on the details right to building on the covenant i think really just shows how moses was obedient you know god didn't just say 1.3.4 1.3465 centimeters and god was like and moses was like okay we'll round it up to 1.4 you know like he followed god to the exact detail like you see the the um faithfulness of and obedience of moses even to the smallest of details and so the tabernacle the whole theme is very important. Remember, the Garden of Eden was a temple. It was a place where God met with his people. Right? And before the fall, all the major areas of life, they were together. Right? So that's family, work, and worship. Right? Those are the three major areas of life. Family, work, and worship. So before the fall, those were all together. They were in the Garden of Eden. There was no fragmentation, right? Today, um, you live here, and where you go to work, all the way there, and then churches. If you can get on the bus in time, if you wake up in time, <laughs> church is there. You know, like there's a fragmentation in a sense. You know, whereas in the Garden of Eden, everything was together. You know, uh, man walked with God, right? God was in the Garden of Eden, and. Man was ordered to take care of the garden, right? To have dominion of it. And he was to do it with his family. And so, this theme of the temple being God's meeting place with his people continues through the tabernacle, right? So, we had the Garden of Eden and then the fall. And then God is like, now I'm going to meet with my people through the tabernacle, right? You with me? And then... After the tabernacle, we'll get the temple that Solomon will build. And then after that, we'll get the church. Right, so you guys see that order? We have garden. I'll just write it down. So, temple, right? God's meeting place with his people. So, eventually we'll get the church and Paul says, don't you know you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? So, this imagery is very important. It can be dry, but look at the bigger picture. How does Exodus end? Right? It ends with the tabernacle being where God meets with his people. Right? It's also called the tent of meeting. So it was a place where God would meet with his people. And today, remember that God meets with us. Right? And I'm not talking about being in a physical building like we are right now. I'm talking about the church, the people of God. Right? The church is not a physical place. It is now a people. Right? So it's really kind of amazing. You can also see, like we spoke with covenants getting bigger, you know, expanding as we go with time. So does the temple. You know? And it's progressive. And First Peter 2 verse 4 says, As you come to him, a living stone, right? speaking of you and I as believers, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen impressions, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Right? And that's what happened with the tabernacle. Right? It was a spiritual house, and the priesthood took, took care of it. 
and they offer spiritual sacrifices. So as we gather together, something special happens that doesn't happen when you are an individual Christian. Right? It's, it's good to have private fellowship, intimate times with the Lord, but the primary focus has always been on community. It's always been on the people of God. Right? As living stones, we need one another. Right? Remember the body is described as, I'm sorry, the church is described as a body. Right? What happens if you cut your arm off? The rest of the body can survive, but the arm itself will die. Right? Because there's no life going through it anymore. And so even in the New Testament, we're told like when we excommunicate someone, it's a judgment on them. Right? You're being put out of the body. You know, and uh, what does it say? Uh, Satan will have, your way, have his way with you. And so uh, the church, God's people, fellowshipping, community with them is vital. It's very important. And that's why the tabernacle is a vital, vital theme as well. It's the meeting place between God and his people. And in this section, God is giving Moses all these instructions on how to faithfully build his house where he will meet with his people. And so the writer of Hebrews compares Moses building the tabernacle to Christ. Right? And he shows that Christ is the greater Moses. Christ is the builder of the church. You know, Moses is just building a physical thing that they have to carry around. But Christ is building up the church. Right, which is greater than any physical meeting place. So if you go to uh, chapter 31, just to point out a couple of things with regards to God, gift, and people, I might say a, bit tricky, a few tricky things here, right? but you're here to hold me accountable, people. So chapter 31, verse 1, right, says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name, by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah, and I filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and, and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. Right? And then Exodus 36 verse 1 kind of says the same thing. So this is a great bit, right? So some people come from a background where music, art, architecture, sports, film, right? It's from the devil, right? Uh, you see all these things that people do in the world. And um, because it's coming, if you see people who are doing evil things with great talent and skill, right? And we say it's from the devil, and are they evil? Yes. No, the people. People are evil. Um, but most of the stuff is made by people, right, who are not godly. And so what we do is we say that all this stuff is bad as well, right, because the movie comes from an unbeliever or, you know, someone who hates God. And so we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, and we can say that people are sinning by consuming movies and music and other arts from the ungodly, right? But it's not always the case. But there does have to be wisdom in what you take in, right, as a believer. So the passages we just read tells us that if someone is good at something and they have a talent for it, who works to give them that gift? It's God, right? So God gives people gifts and talents, you know, your favorite movies and music and all that stuff. All that to say is we can watch things and see the talent and the skill and appreciate it, right? And actually give glory to God for it, right? 
because um, uh, it's John Piper, right, who said, uh, if you notice when you experience something beautiful in music, in film, in television, or whatever, we tend to use worship language, right? Glory, amazing, you know, wow, right? And we can praise God for that, right? We can be grateful for artistic gifts, even though, so what I think we can be said about is that people uh, are gifted by God, but they use it to elevate themselves, you know, or they use it to actually like blaspheme against God, right? But that doesn't take away from the skill or the talent that they have within them, which is God-given, right? Um, and I think just the problem that, that starts to begin with Christians is that they make laws about what you should or shouldn't do. You know, don't read these kinds of books. If you read these kinds of books, you're not believe it. You know, don't watch the series. Oh, you watch that series. Oh, you're horrible, you know. But again, I must emphasize there is wisdom in it, you know. Um, there's a lot of, like, good film. Um, personally, so, like, a film that I really, like, really like is The Dark Knight because, you know, it's just amazing. But, you know, it's totally pagan, right? It's unbelieving. But in it, I can see, you know, the artistic genius and everything. And you can even look for godly things in it. You know, I look at uh, The Dark Knight and you're like, sure, that's human nature, you know, as described by Romans. You know, man is wicked, man is fallen. Um, the, the themes that that film touches on is things that you see in scripture, right? And remember, these are made by image bearers, Right, so you will see something of God. Very tricky to say, but you will see something that can, you know, in a sense, point you to God because they're not going to give you complete garbage, in a sense, right? So um, having a biblical worldview helps because then you can see how something is brilliant, but also where it goes wrong, right? You can see like, oh, okay, yeah, I see this, but you know, this is in reality how things should be, how God has made the world, and. Um, yeah. So remember, we must have great wisdom, and we're all different, right? Some people can watch something, and they cannot be, they won't really be affected spiritually. Might not be the case for you. Some people cannot listen to music with swear words, etc., etc. Some believers, and that's fine. You know, like if it affects your conscience and who you are, it's all right. If you immune to it, that's good. But you know, let's not make laws out of it. Let's not condemn people where there is no sin, right? Um, but yeah. And then Exodus 33, so chapter 33, remember, remember when uh, Moses was getting the Ten Commandments, God said he would destroy the people, right? Some of his own people, because what happened? They started worshipping. They started worshipping the golden calf, right? And do you know what they called the golden calf that they built and made out of gold? They called it Yahweh. Right? They built a golden calf and then they were like, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? So God is furious and now he's going to kill people for it. Right? And what you see with the golden calf is what is called syncretism. Did I say it right? <laughs> it's called syncretism, right? which basically means it's a mixing. Right? It's a mixing of pagan worship or pagan ideologies and ideas with Christianity. Right? In a sense, it's trying to sanitize worldliness. And I think in every age of, of, that we live in as Christians, there will be a form of syncretism that seeps into the church. You know? um, I'll touch more on where I see a lot of golden calves in this day and age. Um, 
later like you see it a lot in the social justice movement you see it a lot in like feminism you know you take ideologies from there and then you make it christian you know um but it's dangerous because that ultimately leads into unbelief you know that's that's if you push it to the extreme that's where you will end up with syncretism right and it's false worship at the end of the day and that's what's happening with the golden calf so Moses is furious with the people. He comes down and in anger, he breaks the tablet with the Ten Commandments, right? And, you know, like really fuming. And so he has to go back up to get it written up again. And he says to God in verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So Moses asked to see God's glory. And from this passage, what do we see is God's glory? It's his goodness, right? That is his glory, his goodness to us. Verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God is saying, I'm going to hide you in the, uh, Moses in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by you. And as I pass by you, I'm going to reveal my character to you. Right? You're going to see my goodness. You're going to see my glory. And the Lord does that. And if you go to the next chapter, uh, chapter 34, verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Exodus 34, 5 to 7, what is this God like? Right? I think this is one of my favorite, favorite passages in Scripture because it's one of the few ones where God tells us what he's like. You know, we all like to describe who God is. You know, God is faithful. God is this and this. Here we have God describing himself. Right? He's telling us who he, is, who he is and who he's like. And before Christ, we would look to this passage you know, to tell us what God is like. But in Christ, you see, we see the fullness of God, right? And if you read this, you see that God is merciful and gracious. Right? He is slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations. So do you see the picture here? He's keeping his steadfast love to a thousand generations, right? When he's, when he's uh, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, right? It's only to the third and fourth generation. You know, so you see the picture there. It's like um, he's abounding in grace and mercy. He's extremely merciful, but who will by no means clear the guilty, right? God is a just judge and he will punish evil and he will punish sin. So the view of God as being mean and tyrannical is just unbiblical, right? That has been the view of many Christians, sadly, um, um, we think God in the Old Testament is mean, but the one in the New Testament is loving and kind. First of all, God is God, 
Old Testament, New Testament, there is no change, right? God isn't like, okay, I'm going to put this hat down, let me put on my loving and gracious hat on when uh, the book of Matthew comes around, right? And this passage is very important to the prophets. So Jonah will remember the steadfast love of God when he's in the belly of the whale, right? Jeremiah, in the book of Lamentations, will remember this when women are killing, when women are killing and eating their children and the city is lying in ruins and there's rape and murder all over the place, right? In the midst of all that chaos, he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, right? So it's quite amazing. It's quite an amazing passage. It's one of my favorites. And if we jump to Exodus 40, the last chapter. Verse 33. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Right. So the tabernacle is erected. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they would not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. And fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Right? So the book ends with God being present with his people and the tabernacle. Right? And, the, and the people were faithful to God. They wouldn't go anywhere without the presence of God. Right? Or when God had allowed it, basically. So, yeah, any questions on that? So I was going to draw the tabernacle, but... Like after last week, and you guys complaining about my drawing, you know, I'll just leave it. Yeah. Any any questions? Any thoughts? Or comments? Can, you draw it? Can I draw it? 